Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the MBN Entrepreneurship and Leadership Channel. As well as new content, we are making available selected podcasts recorded by our hosts prior to joining the MBN family. This is one of them, and so this podcast may refer to itself with a different name and identity. Enjoy the show. The center of innovation is here, and you know this is part of the message of Project Cashmere of this whole whole podcast that there's something happening here which is beyond just good value for money. Like I said, having the vision is great, but the key is these concrete initiatives that drive it at the ground level. I, I'm, I really like uh, the idea of, of starting something really small with a small group of highly focused people and with an original idea and just just take on the world basically you know poland is the land of opportunity and I, and I like to say the east is the new west because you always used to go west in history to find more adventure and danger and prove yourself there are some good things beginning to happen here in krakow but we've got a very long way to go haven't we Hi, it's Sam Cook, founder and co-host of Project Kazimierz, back again for another episode of the Innovation in Europe podcast. And today's guest is a uh, really interesting um, kind of pillar of the Krakow and Polish startup scene, Paul Klipp. He's from the United States. Uh, and today he's going to tell a really interesting story about uh, how he was working for a software development company called Lunar Logic in the United States that uh, had him move to Poland to set up a software development office and uh, how he ended up running uh, the same company called Lunar Logic in uh, Krakow, Poland is really interesting. Paul has gone on to become a top agile training and consulting coach. And this is a movement in uh, development uh, methodology that has become really popular in Poland. They're really one of the experts in the world at that. He's helped teams around the world prove their performance through Agile methodologies. Uh, he's also a Scrum Master, which is part of the Agile uh, technology where he's uh, one of the most popular and successful um, coaches in the Agile project management scene. He's run some conferences where he actually bring in developers to go over this. And it's uh, really kind of decentralized and uh, sped up the uh, innovation in the development world. And again, Poland's really known for this. And then finally, uh, Paul talks about some of his um, uh, initiatives to help build the startup scene in Krakow with uh, TED, TEDx Krakow, and also a new company he's running, Software as a Service Company, which he developed uh, as part of his uh, uh, side project at Lunar Logic, which is now uh, turned into a full time job. So, uh, really uh, hope you get a lot out of this episode. As always, uh, please feel free to comment, email us uh, if you have any suggestions for the show, future guests. If you love it, please comment on iTunes to help spread the word. So before today's show, please take a short moment to listen to our announcements from today's sponsors, and I hope you enjoy. Thanks. This episode is brought to you by Innovation Nest. Innovation Nest's mission is to create global technology companies from Poland and Europe that can reach the international English-speaking market. Innovation Nest runs an acceleration program with Google Campus Warsaw and has a number of companies in its portfolio that have gone on to get Silicon Valley funding. The latest success story was the Beacon Company, Estimote, which just received $10.7 million in Venture Series A funding. 
Innovation Nest focuses on the early stage startup companies in business-to-business -business software as a service. Innovation Nest was founded by Piot Willem, who in the 1990s, during the early days of the internet, founded Onet, an online publishing portal, took it public on the stock exchange, and sold the company. Innovation Nest runs a series of conferences called SaaS Meetups in Krakow and Warsaw, which any European-based startup is welcome to sign up for and attend. If you're a European-based startup seeking investment in the B2B software as a service space, visit the website innovationnest.co to see when the next seminar is. If you're an investor interested in investing in the European startup scene, there's no better place to put your money than Innovation Nest. Poland is really turning into the next Silicon Valley of Europe with its wealth of engineering talent, great startup community, and now great facilitators like Innovation Nest. Innovation Nest does the best due diligence and mentoring I have seen in the tech startup community in Poland. Go to the Innovation Nest website and contact them to set up a meeting. This episode is brought to you by Google Campus in Warsaw. Google Campus is part of a network of six worldwide campuses all over the world run by Google for Entrepreneurs, headquartered at the main office in its Mountain View headquarters in Silicon Valley. The Warsaw campus is one of only six other campuses in the world, and it is covering the entire Central and Eastern European region as a regional hub for innovation. When you become a member of Google Campus, you have access to their free cafe and event space, where there are usually one to two educational or networking events held daily, including a chance to interact with the Poland Google staff in Warsaw. You can also apply to join their part or full-time co-working space and startup accelerator programs they're doing in partnership with Innovation Nest Venture Capital Fund based in Krakow, Poland. You also have a free membership to all six Google campuses across the world based in London, England, Sao Paulo, Brazil, Seoul, South Korea, Tel Aviv in Israel, and Madrid in Spain. Google Campus would like to encourage you to visit their website, campus.co forward slash Warsaw, or you can just type it into Google, I'm sure they'll help you find it, and register to become a member today. Campus Exchange Central and Eastern European Edition, brought to you by Google Campus in Warsaw, is also putting on a five-day immersion program designed to support the global expansion of startups in Central and Eastern Europe. To help you expand your business, Google Campus will be providing you teams with tools for market research and export, mentoring with industry leaders, innovation workshops, and invaluable connections. Criteria to apply includes your startup must be based in Central and Eastern European region. Your tech product must be launched, have market traction with customer feedback, and getting ready for a global debut. Two attending founding members must also be able to attend the full program, the next one starting in June of 2016. And finally, founders should be proficient in English. If you're a startup in Central and Eastern Europe poised to take your business international and want to boost from your friends at Google, Campus, and Warsaw, Apply today to join this event. Go to campus.co forward slash Warsaw. Or again, just Google Campus Warsaw. I'm sure it will come up first in the search results. Google runs these programs periodically throughout its time. As you're listening to this, the next one uh, at the time of this recording will be held in the summer of 2016. But if it's past that, please go to the Google Campus website to find the next event. Hello again, Project Kajimej listener. This is Sam Cook here with my co-host Richard, all uh, all together with our guest, Paul Clip. Richard, how are you? Very well. Good afternoon, everyone, if it's afternoon when you're listening. And Paul, um, Richard, I'm going to let you, as tradition, since you know most of our guests better than I do, introduce Paul. 
and a little bit of his background uh, before we uh, get into it here. So I think I first met Paul in about 2007 or 2008, introduced by uh, Ramon Tanchinso, who also spoke on this podcast in one of our early episodes. And um, back then he was both an entrepreneur and setting up the uh, IT Small Business Alliance, which I, I'd had some failed earlier attempts to start the networking community back in the early 2000s. Of the, um, it was called First Tuesday, and Paul was doing something that seemed to be working better than what I was doing. And as in my life, I've always been most successful when I work with people more effective than me. Uh, I, I, I tried to help with that. Then later, we um, worked together with Paul leading the first ever TEDx Krakow in 2010, and we've we've st we've stayed in touch with supporting different projects. We're both busy people, so quite often we tend to work together when we're doing something, as as today. Uh, but Paul also has been a very successful entrepreneur with a company called Lunalogic, which I'm sure he'll t tell everyone more about during during the program. And also a new project that I've uh, talked to Paul about that is exciting is software as a service uh, project, uh, Kanbera, right? Kanbanery. 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 And, um, you know, Richard, you know, I, as an outsider observer looking at this community, I think, um, you know, where I'd like to start with, with you, Paul, is, um, you know, your early journey in Krakow um, and then, uh, you know, just how did you happen as an American to land here? Um, and, uh, you know, what have you seen over the early years, uh, starting, you know, starting getting started here and, and you know, how have things changed? Things have changed rather drastically in the 10 plus years since I first arrived. I came to Krakow in 2004 and previously I had been working with a company called Lunar Logic in America, which is located in Eugene, Oregon, a lovely little town in central Oregon. And there was a running joke when I first came that uh, because the company was growing so fast that the CEO had asked me to go and set up a branch office in Portland, and I misunderstood. <laughs> and and, and what, well, was the joke on you or joke on them? So. Well, I think the joke's on them because they went out of business a year later and I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, so, so um, what was the plan, the original plan coming to Krakow and tell us how it kind of worked out to your benefit here? Well, the original plan was that uh, the company that I was with was growing very rapidly. They had a very demanding client that was throwing more work at them than they could handle, and they were in a small town where they couldn't hire as many people as they needed. Um, and at the same time, this client was interested in offshoring more because everyone was talking about that back in 2004. And so we conceived this plan to set up a branch office that was abroad, and in that way we could both keep the work and tap into a larger labor market and also allow our client to have the benefits of offshoring without losing any of, of their business. And so because I had experience working abroad, I had worked in Poland for two years, mostly teaching international business and economics, but also doing marketing for a group of universities in the States. And then I'd worked in South Africa for a couple of years, um, mostly doing consulting. I was a natural for the job of, of going and starting the overseas um, branch. Also, I had helped them with their growth. I'd started with a company when they were only 27 people and helped them to grow to over 250. So I was eager to do something different. So I came over here and started hiring Java developers at a time when it was 
ludicrously easy to hire Java developers in Krakow because the reason we chose Krakow back then is that we've got Krakow has has two major universities that both have good technical programs, and there were very few employers in Krakow back in 2004 that were attracting these people. So a lot of people were coming to school, to Krakow to go to school, finding it was a beautiful city, graduating with a tech degree and having to go back home for work when they'd much rather stay here. And so you could just hang out a sign saying, now hiring Java developers, and people would queue up outside your door to give you their CV which clearly is not the case today. <laughs> clearly not. And also, I mean, one thing I, I forgot to mention in the introduction, apart from Kanbanery, which and Kanbanery, I understand, is a partner for TEDx Kashmir, we're getting that tool for, tr for free for our speaker management program. So kudos to Paul for that. But also you did the AC uh, Agile Central Europe conference, which I forgot to mention. But could you go back a bit further? Like, what's your, what's your background? Because like, quite often we get people to like the personal story didn't start with... Eugene, Oregon, and Lunar Logic. What was your background? Did you were you an IT guy? Were you a computer guy? Where where were you born, and where are you from? I, I was not an IT guy. I I made a terrible mistake, one might say. Although I think it's it's played out rather nicely in the long run, of not getting um, as involved in the computer revolution back in the days when all of my friends were taking apart their Ataris and learning how to put them back together again. Um, so I was intensely interested in journalism when I was young. I was the youngest newspaper editor in the history of the Texas Press Association. I ran my own newspaper um, while I was still a high school student. It was a city newspaper for a publishing group. And then I went to do a degree in journalism and ended up uh, getting disillusioned during the process and switching to anthropology. So I got an undergraduate degrees in anthropology and English composition and did the only thing that I could with it, which was running a food service operation in a prison. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> that, that seems like I, a natural I, by, by, the, by the way, <laughs> you, you, yeah, there are three people in this podcast, all of whom have slightly strange senses of humor. So, <laughs> so if you hear us laughing and oh. you're not laughing, you, you may have to get used to it for the rest of this podcast. <laughs> not, not to discourage anyone from pursuing a degree in anthropology. It has been has proven to be immensely useful in many, many aspects of my life but getting a first job was not one of them. Mm -hmm. um, and then I, my plan had always been, since I studied anthropology, to go into uh, corporate culture change consulting because that seemed to be a very exciting field that hadn't emerged yet. And so I went back to school for an MBA because I figured that would give me the um, credibility I needed to, to practice. Um, but the last bit of the puzzle was foreign experience. I had a degree in anthropology, I had a specialization in international business, and I had only ever taken one spring break trip to Mexico in my life, which is the only reason I owned a passport. And so I took a job that my international human resources um, professor found for me with a group of, of uh, a consortium of universities, the Big Ten universities, doing marketing for them in Europe. And that's how I ended up finding out that I love travel. But um, at this point, now by now, the, the IT world was booming, Silicon Valley was being created, um, the 
the bubble hadn't burst yet. All of my friends were, were doing wonderful in IT and making great money, and it seemed like the place to be. And I didn't have any of the background I needed to get in there. Um, and it was just through luck, really, that um, after my few years doing consulting in South Africa, I was back in America just after 9-11, which is a, the worst time in the world to come back to America after being away for a few years because the economy was, was in serious trouble um, back then, obviously. And there was a flood of unemployed MBAs on the market because that was just after um, Arthur Anderson mm -hmm. had collapsed. And so I got myself a job. Um, my job title was chief operating officer of a marketing agency. My actual daily job duties was mostly making large balloon sculptures because this company owned a balloon company that they had bought and the person who ran it had left. And so they had tons of balloon sculptures that had to be made. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that, that was an interesting job and I enjoyed it because I enjoy every job that I ever do. Uh, one, one of the things that I think is, is uh, very important no matter what you're doing is to focus not just on what you're doing but more on how you're doing it. I was explaining this to my son just yesterday who hates mathematics that one way of dealing with a task that doesn't excite you is to get excited about doing it as well as you can. Mm -hmm. And so I was absorbed in this job of, of becoming America's premier expert in large balloon construction. And I even uh, had folks like Disney asking me for advice on their own constructions, but it was not where I wanted to be for the rest of my life. So I started making it known among my circle of friends that I was open to other ideas. And uh, one of them, said, you know, I'm working with this small software company in Oregon and some of the experiences that you have, you've had coordinating large projects in South Africa make me think that maybe you could coordinate technology projects as well. And so I kind of jumped into technology project management with both feet, assuming it was like any other kind of project management and found a lot of parallels and, and differences and learned quickly the best way to learn how to do a job is to do it. The best job you can possibly have is one for which you are not quite qualified, but have some toe in the door so you're not totally lost. Anybody who is overqualified for their job probably isn't learning. So, so I took a job for which I wasn't qualified and I, I had to grow into it quickly. Mm -hmm. And that's how I ended up in IT. And that was a good, that was back in what, 2002, 2003. So at this point, I've got people looking at me like I'm a veteran when in fact, I can very, very clearly remember when I had no idea what I was doing. Mm -hmm. One thing that I've noticed over the years is you've been very much sort of polymath interested in different areas. Now I know a bit more about one of the nice things about doing these interviews is you get to know things about <laughs> your friends that you didn't know, having, despite having known them for 10 years. But I, I notice you're, very often you're reading a book that's to do with self-improvement. I'm not necessarily acquiring a skill, but some form of knowledge. And what's your, how, how do you learn? Because you've obviously been through formal education, but I get the sense you're teaching, you're, you're learning a lot through your own efforts, your self-teaching. Self Is that right? Yes. Um, I, I was highly influenced um, by a talk that one of uh, our speakers gave at the ACE conference three years ago now. That's, called, that's Agile Central Europe for those who didn't figure it out. Yeah. Um, it used to be Agile Central Europe. I've rebranded it as ACE because we started incorporating more lean and UX content into it. So it's not strictly an Agile conference anymore. 
So, so ACE, sorry. ACE. So okay. it's now the ACE conference. My cor correction retracted. <laughs> <laughs> I, that, I actually planned that. From the start, when I called it Agile Central Europe, the plan was to, the reason why I liked that title was that if I ever wanted to diversify the content away from purely Agile, I could do so without necessarily changing the domain, which mm -hmm. is ACEConf. Um, but uh, he gave a talk. It was Marcin Florian, a consultant uh, from Poland working in the UK, who gave a talk called No Learning. And he talked about a mentor he had. And he would frequently go to this, this guy and say, I just read this fantastic thing. It's so brilliant. It's going to change my life. And his mentor would always ask him the same question. Well, tell me how you've used it so far. Oh, I haven't done anything with it yet. I just read it and I'm really excited about it. Um, to which his mentor would reply, well, you haven't learned a thing until you've applied it, until you've done something with it and incorporated it into your life. It's just something that is waiting to be forgotten. And so it used to be that I would read a lot to learn. And I realized that to some extent, there's... I, there, one can fetishize knowledge to the extent that it just becomes interesting to be interested. And so I would often I, read lots of history. I love reading history the same way that I like reading fiction, but it doesn't make a real impact on my life. It, it takes an enormous amount of repetition before some, anything sticks. For example, I have read easily... 20 books about Republican Roman history. And I'm reading another one right now. And I'm still being reminded as I'm reading the one now of things that I have read 20 times before and forgotten. And now I'm learning it all over again. So simply reading books, I find to be absolutely useless, great for education, but useless in terms of learning. For me, the only way that I really learn something new is when I tackle a problem that has to be solved that I don't know how to solve. And so, for example, in when I took over uh, running Kanbanery, I really wanted one of the reasons why I, why I stepped into that role is that I'm very interested in design ethnography. It seems like a fantastic way to apply my background in ethnographic research and anthropology as well as my interests in technology, but it's something I've absolutely never done before and know nothing about. And so I simply gave myself the job of design ethnographer, a job that I was, again, barely qualified for, but had some background in that could be useful. And I simply got some books on it. But the thing about the books is that every single time I took ideas from a book, I would translate them into to-do items and I would actually do them. I would apply everything to a problem I had, which was in the early days of taking over Kanbanery, really understanding our clients, what what their environment is, what their needs are, in what ways Kanbanery is currently fulfilling those needs, and in which, which ways it's not. And I leapt right into to interviewing users. I leapt right into um, evaluating and, and uh, um, drawing actionable conclusions from large amounts of qualitative data. And the reading helped me tremendously. But if I had only read those things and never done them, I would not be able to, to say that I had learned any of it. Well, le learning, learning by doing is something that I think uh, all three of us uh, have, have experienced and done. And certainly uh, that's a message that we can send out loud and clear to anyone who's listening, that you learn a lot by doing things. Um, but uh, but we, we're in an age where entrepreneurship is very 
fashionable, cool, sexy, whatever you like to call it. And obviously, looking at your CV, you seem very entrepreneurial. Is that how you self-identify? Do you see yourself as an entrepreneur? Or when you take on a new task, you've taken on Lunar Logic, you've taken on Kanbanner, you've set up a con you set up a conference, you did the first TEDx, which is in Krakow, which is maybe more of a franchise than a than a um, doing it yourself from scratch. But do do you see yourself as an entrepreneur? I'm more of an accidental entrepreneur. Um, previously, I, I I think I see myself more uh, as an opportunist. Um, I'm a shameless optimist in the sense that I always see the best in every situation, including ones that other people might perceive as being really bad. And I always make the best of the situations that I'm in by habitually keeping my options open for as long as possible. And so the first company, well, actually, it might go back a little further. I was going to say the first company I actually ran, I didn't intend to run, and that's Lunar Logic in Poland. Because when I came here to run a branch office, I did not expect my parent company to go out of business and leave me with the option of either quickly shutting down the company, shutting down the branch office, or repurposing it as a new, new business. But um, indeed, I put myself through university by running a photography studio, doing some freelance writing. I have always preferred working for myself to working for other people. It, I think uh, in my case, personally, I've identified that a lot of the stress that I experience in my life is not from bad things happening, but from not having control over them. And so I'd much rather crash and burn because of something I did than even succeed at the whim of somebody else in terms of regulating my own stress levels. So if you're thinking Paul's a team player. <laughs> no, no, so that's, 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 that's very, very interesting. And I'm as much a team player as any coach. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, you, you like to lead the team and, and um, you know, team members, you know, I'm sure your organizations are very uh, collaborative and that's actually one of the, the uh, things that we'll get to in a little bit is, is on the agile uh, coaching. Um, before we get into agile, because I, I really would, I, I love the work that you've done on this, but, you know, Richard and you have bounced around it. The thing I've been struck by is how TEDx Krakow almost kickstarted or really was, you know, uh, I think Estimote founders have some history at that conference and, um, you know, Ramon uh, Tenchino and some of the other people. It, it really seemed to bring together a lot of very talented people in the community. Um, why did you jump into TEDx uh, Krakow, and uh, you know what do you what do you think looking back at the legacy of that and how everything's progressing here? Well, originally I did it because Richard wouldn't. <laughs> um, I, I recall being at dinner with uh, Ralph. What's his surname? Talmond. Ralph Talmond from TEDx Warsaw. Right, and and he was encouraging you and me and Evespoon, and I think there were a couple other people at the table. I don't remember, and. He said, you know, this is, this is going really well in Warsaw. You really ought to be doing it in Krakow. I can, I can give you the materials. I can give you the introductions to the folks at, at uh, TED. I can give you advice and consulting and coaching, and I can help make it successful. We just need somebody to take responsibility, somebody to put their name on the project and, and say, I will be the, the coordinator of TEDx Krakow. And we all just looked at each other for a long time. <laughs> and... Um, at the moment, I didn't have anything big going on, um, and I had been involved. I, I was running the 
the ACE conference, which was still called Agile Central Europe back then, and I had organized the Eurico conference, which was a it's it's a roaming Ruby on Rails conference that happens in a different uh, uh, country in Europe every year, and I'd organized the one the year before that. So I just figured that perhaps um, in terms of large-scale event management, I was probably the most qualified at the table, and so I, I felt kind of shamed into raising my hand. And it went. It, it turned out to go really well. Ralph was fantastic and, and very, very helpful. He had done it successfully in Warsaw for, for a few years at that point. And the community came together wonderfully in Krakow. I met a lot of people that I wouldn't have known otherwise. Um, I remember uh, Richard was, was very active in the first uh, TEDx Krakow. And the woman who has since taken it over was uh, one of the core team members. So also, so much of what I've done has been, I've always believed it's really important to do things that benefit the community because we are all in this together. Once you choose the community in which you are going to, to build a business or build a career or build a, build a brand, there are so many interrelated elements. For example, when I first arrived in Krakow, there was this notion. Um, I had talked to a few people who had tried starting initiatives to bring together the tech community before and the entrepreneurial community before. There was a notion um, which no longer exists, I think, in the, in the Polish tech community, but it was, it was very much a carryover from older ideas of how businesses are supposed to be run in Poland, of isolationism and closedness, protecting your, your, yourself, um, looking at all other um, businesses around you as active or potential competitors, which I saw as um, dangerous because at the time I was running a service business, a business-to-business -business service company. And that was one of the areas that was just starting to emerge in Krakow that has since boomed. Krakow is now one of the major exporters of services in the world, certainly one of the major exporters of services in, um, in Europe. And the most important component of business to business services is the perception of, of the sector. So if, for example, I'm trying to sell business to business services to a entrepreneur in London who's looking to offshore his software development services. And he's got a friend who outsourced some work to anywhere in Poland and had a bad experience. That's going to color that person's experience of Poland, the Poland tech community as a whole. And so I thought it very important that we work together in order to make sure that we're all successful. It's very much the same, the same fundamental idea that leads um, petrol companies to all set up service stations at the same intersection that just everyone does better when that becomes the place to go for petrol and everybody does get does better when Poland is the place to go for talent. And so, so fostering an environment of collaboration proved to be very useful for myself and for many others, purely selfish motives. Um, and I think that uh, TEDx Krakow was just another extension of the same strategy of, of positioning um, Krakow as an exciting, interesting, innovative place where things happen because that's good for 
publicity, good for marketing, good for branding, good yeah. for all of us. Yes, I, certainly. I, I think that uh, I, I remember that lunch in a, a restaurant on Shenna. I think it's it's not called Artifact. It's called Aperitif. Aperitif. Yeah. Uh, and I remember this silence when the question came up, who was going to run it? And I, I cannot for the life of me remember why I knew it couldn't be me, but I had some very powerful, I think it might have been to do with the age of my children, but you had children, so it can't have been. I think I think, I don't know whether it was, Family. I think it was a mixture of family and some personal circumstances, which meant that I couldn't take on because I don't think I had a job. I'm trying to remember, but um, but and 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 also it was clearly the case that Paul had more experience. But for me, the the sort of the selfish reason was the idea. Well, Paul had tried with the IT Small Business Alliance. I'd tried with the First Tuesday. It wasn't proving that easy to get this community going. Um, it was also a kind of selfish reason that I felt that people who were interested in TED and TEDx would be interesting people. This was, a, and TED was, a, TED even then was a mega brand. It was a much more powerful brand than anything that existed locally. And I felt, well, anyone in town, there are probably lots of people in town who aren't TED and I don't know who they are. And organizing the TEDx will, and that will be a way of finding those people. So it was a, and it's a much better sieve than simply the entrepreneurship sieve because there are lots of uh, if you imagine the sieve the filter there are lots of people who are very interesting nice attractive uh inspiring people who have nothing to do with business and the business community tends to gravitate towards people who are interested in making money and profits which isn't a very good thing to be interested in but it's not the only game in town and ted is much broader than that and i i felt that the entrepreneurs need to meet the non the the sort of social entrepreneurs the people who are doing things and, and, and i think it worked out very well it, it started something that proved to be pretty unstoppable well you think of what grew out of that again you know again estimote which just got funded series a funding um the famous story is they 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 met at a tedx the later tedx Krakow. They, yeah they met at one of the tedx Krakows and um, you know, the open coffee movement started after that Google for entrepreneurs, um, and, you know, just a lot of initiatives that it's, it's, it's very interesting to see in a case study, if you're listening to this anywhere else in the world, what, what the positive spinoffs of bringing TEDx to a, a community can become because it hadn't been successful up until TEDx, the kind of the community movement. So. Well, Ramon Tanchinso talks about sort of iterations that you get. You get this sort of some, when, when a project fails, you never know whether it was a bad idea in the first place, it was a great idea uh, with the wrong people, or it was a great idea with the right people, but the timing was wrong. But it's, uh, the causes of failure are quite hard to unpick, and you know it could have just been. Also, the internet was growing and growing and growing, and so the ability to make contact with people through things like social media. And Facebook was a young company back then in 2010. I don't know how many years they've been going, but, but you know, having, a, having a community on Facebook made it much easier to coordinate people and bring them together. So there were many things happening in parallel, which just made it the perfect storm or the right, the right, the right time. This episode is brought to you by James Cook Media. I founded James Cook Media when I moved to Poland. James Cook Media is a full-service digital marketing and sales agency. Our mission is to bring world-class products to the global English-speaking market. The thing that I've noticed in Poland is how many amazing, talented companies there are building great products, and they're struggling to get traction in the international English-speaking market. I think that's a shame, and I want to help these companies get their products to the market. Silicon Valley parlance, you would call us growth hackers. 
my team of specialists that I've trained from the beginning here in Poland builds from scratch custom marketing funnels. This includes ideal customer visualization and profiling, complete branding, visual identity, videos, music, uh, website and landing page copywriting, landing page and website design, marketing video commercials, sales videos, testimonial videos, as well as custom written music, podcast productions like this one, content marketing, search engine optimization, website optimization, and paid media traffic, campaign design, management, as well as optimization, including Facebook ads, Google ads, YouTube ads, LinkedIn ads, Pinterest ads, and Instagram ads. So that's a lot. But I've been doing marketing online now for over 10 years in multiple industries from e-commerce to tourism to software as a service, digital publishing, money transfer apps, and online sports marketing. Over the course of this time, I founded two separate companies as well as worked for loads of clients all over the world. And I had to learn every part of online marketing. I came to Poland to build my own in-house marketing team for my last business. And I'll tell you that the talent here is absolutely world-class, as good as any marketing talent you would find in New York City. I personally design my campaigns, write the copy, direct the videos, do the setup with the project manager and a full-time team of specialists of designers, developers, ad managers, and optimizers to fully manage from start to finish your marketing so you can focus on your product and your business. If you think you'd like to learn more about my company and what we may be able to do for you, go to jamescook.pl and enter your information. You will also find information about meetups that I'm running with Ava Vysotska of Good Tribe Consulting, where you can learn all about the latest in marketing strategy and techniques. Even when I work with clients, I make sure that they completely understand my marketing philosophy and strategy so that they can have buy-in and ownership of it. Because as a business owner, you always need to completely own your strategy for getting your product to market. But we help you do it. If you're a startup or an investor from outside of Poland and you're interested in visiting Krakow and Warsaw's startup scene in Poland or even moving here to set up your team, James Cook Media also offers high-level concierge services to help companies get set up here. I moved to Poland because I believe East is the new West. For 400 years, brave, intrepid entrepreneurs have been going West to the U.S. and the American West for prospecting. Now San Francisco and California is so overpriced and so expensive. The new digital gold rush, as I call it, where you can get the most value for your money in terms of investment is here in Eastern Europe, where you have world-class engineering talent, designers, video makers, artists, graphic artists, and marketers. You can do New York City agency or San Francisco level coding work for a very competitive price. If you're interested to learn more, please go to the website, jamescook.pl, enter your information, and we'll give you more information about how we might be able to help you. And can you, we didn't actually talk about what Lunar Logic is. You mentioned it's a sort of services business for foreign companies, but the two, two things. One, can you just give a few numbers about um, Lunar Logic as, as, as you built it up to before you handed it over because you're no longer running it? And also, how you found your, I remember you describing how you find your customers by browsing through the job ads of American, the uh, positions vacant in American job sites and for how you find customers is something that should be interesting to every entrepreneur mm-hmm. uh, and, and and also what sort of business it was when you handed over. Yes, absolutely. It was, I got the news, the bad news on a Friday. Um, I got an email just I'd only been in Poland for about six months at this point. I had hired, I think we had maybe eight or nine people and their job was doing whatever the American head office told them to do. So I had a pretty cushy 
cushy startup. I had a guaranteed customer. I was sent over here with enough money in my pocket to set up the business and a guaranteed flow of work. Which is incredibly dangerous. If you are, if you have one customer, don't feel that's cushy. <laughs> feel, feel like there's a guy who's got your life support switch in his hand, right? And he flicked the switch on what, on a Friday, a spring Friday. Uh, I got an email and uh, the wording of the email was very important. It was, we've just lost um, our biggest account which is another illustration of how dangerous it is to have to rely too much on one client. And so we're going to have to close down. No, he didn't say we're going to have to close down the office. He said, we're going to have to stop sending work to Krakow. Please shut down the business before you run out of money, which gave me an option. He didn't say shut down the business. He said, shut it down before you run out of money. And uh, I remember going home in a bit of a panic and, taking a walk with my wife, pushing my son, who was then um, only a few months old. Great time to hear that news, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and thinking, well, you know, there aren't any really good children's clothing distributors in Poland. I think I would really enjoy retail. Maybe I'll start up a children's clothing store um, and import stuff from America. That was my idea. But first, I'll take a crack at keeping things together. And so what I had was a couple of Java developers, um, a, a couple of testers. But what I, one thing that I had, which was very, very interesting, and I didn't even realize quite how interesting it was, is I had um, a few PHP programmers. Uh, keep in mind, this is uh, spring 2005. For any Ruby on Rails people out there, you'll be able to put it into some context. And one of them was a Java developer who, she told me she just wanted to do something interesting. She wanted to do something new, something interesting. And so we took one of our internal projects and I suggested trying to do it using um, this new framework that um, was, was going on in the open source community called Rails. And so instead of using PHP, she used Ruby on Rails to build an internal time tracking system. And the PHP programmers in the company were looking over her shoulder and getting kind of jealous at the syntax, um, the, the, the cleanliness, and the ease of creating a basic application using Rails. And this was back in the days of Rails 0.8. So it was a good six months before Ruby on Rails was released as stable. So I had in this company that I had to shut down before we ran out of money with about six weeks worth of money left in the bank, three of the only experienced Ruby on Rails programmers in the world who didn't work for David Hanemeyer Hansen. And so I, st I started looking for clients and I was looking for two things. I was looking for, for um, I was mostly looking for anything that, that, that these people could do. So I was looking for Java, I was looking for um, PHP, I was looking for web development, but I was also putting out a few feelers about Ruby on Rails and one of them stuck um, in, a, in a rather monumental way for us. There were some, there were a few people working for the United Nations Media Lab in Tokyo who were really excited about Ruby on Rails and had started playing with it themselves. And they were looking for a company that could do offshore Ruby on Rails development six months before Rails was even declared to be stable. So they were kind of out there too. 
And we found each other because they couldn't find anybody else talking about this outside of 37 Signals. So just as it, as it so happened, our very first client and the only one we'd be able to put into our portfolio was one of the best known brands in the world, the United Nations. And one of the other striking things about that, a lot of people get really nervous about doing um, creative, agile work with large institutions. And the United Nations was one of those difficult contracts that I ever negotiated. It, it ended up being a one-and-a-half-page contract instead of my usual one-page contracts. And it was done in an entirely agile manner with no fixed cost, no fixed price, even though it was a, a huge multinational organization with, with loads of bureaucracy on the one side and a Polish supplier on the other side, both of which are supposed to be impossible to do with, with anything but a fixed price contract in an agile way. And just by agreeing to common goals and putting the necessary um, trust mechanisms in place, we were able to do the job with a one and a half page contract, which is one of the things I'm still rather proud of. Mm -hmm. So that's how we got started. And once we had one, possibly the first commercial Ruby on Rails um, project outside of 37 signals in the world under our belts, the work for Ruby on Rails just started flooding in. Okay, and, and there was something about you looking for clients by perusing job adverts. So I think yes. It, I think, and, and this is like, when you think about it, it's a very simple idea, but quite often in business, it's the simple ideas that make the difference, and I think it's worth sharing. But the two ways in which we, I should say three ways. There's three ways which, in which we found most of our clients early on, um, and they were, I used to look for people who are hiring web developers because I figured these are people who need web developers. And there's, there's a rather small number of people. When you think about the billions of people on earth, the number of them that hire web developers is really small. And there's a lot of overlap where I should say that the people who offshore web development are a subset of that community. So what I would do is approach them in a helpful way. I'd say, you know, I know that you're looking to hire somebody on site, but if you would like to have more flexibility, some of the benefits of, of at least offshoring, if not all of the work that you're doing, some of the work, because it gives you the, the flexibility to expand and contract because any uh, development project is going to have um, a greater need in the early stages. When you're building an application initially, especially when you're a web startup, you need a good sized team to get the application out there and built. And then you need to focus more on marketing and growth. And so you don't necessarily need the same number of programmers and programmers are expensive. So I have a core team on site and then use a more experienced company to help get the core team up to speed. And then once you, once you build the initial project, you can refocus your costs on marketing and reduce your team size without any of, without having to lay people off if you work with us. And that resonated with um, enough startups to get us enough work. The other way that I was looking for new work was by being helpful. The New York Tech Meetup community was one of the, the rapidly growing communities because Meetup was focused in New York. And Meetup itself started the, meet, the New York Tech Meetup. And so I went to New York because I had a couple of clients there, attended a New York Tech Meetup meeting physically and joined their mailing list. I would, I would strongly caution against just trolling these kind of mailing lists looking for work. 
but by meeting them through people who are already members and then concentrating most of my efforts on the list at being helpful. I was looking for people, not people who are looking for programmers offering to, to do work for them, but looking for people with questions that I could answer and just generally being a helpful, constructive member of that community. I got a lot of work as well. I think being, being helpful as a business strategy is uh, a good idea. Being helpful as a characteristic of any human being is a good idea. Just being helpful is it's not just good for the person you're helping, but actually it's good for the person being helpful because you know, at the end of the day you feel more satisfied with what you did with your life than if you weren't helpful. I, I don't see any downside with being helpful. and uh, it's, But it's very nice to hear of a situation where that public spiritedness turns into turns into dollars or zwati or whatever kind of currency you count your well-being in. The, the best the best sales tactics and, and the best marketing tactics are to give something valuable that you should charge for for free, which you were doing, and you can now automate a lot of this online, which is what I do. And um, and then uh, people say, well, wow, if the free stuff, the free advice, the free help is this good, then you know, what's the paid stuff like? And um, that's a great strategy. And uh, um, you know, the key is uh, giving without expecting in return and then then things start to come back but if you give in a manipulative way like right away i need something back i think that's that's when uh people sense that and run away so you obviously did it the right way if, if cracker for our listeners community starts in front of people being weirdly helpful <laughs> then blame blame paul clip right? well, it's, 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 it's a great strategy i mean everyone's mother i'm sure uh has been been like this their whole life you know very helpful without asking for anything in return and um, you know, that's, uh, it's just a great life strategy. So, um, but apply to business in a specific way. Uh, Paul, you were, I think you're, you're very well known for a lot of things. You know, the, the, the Ruby rails, uh, on, on rails movement here in Krakow, which, you know, you know, base and a lot of other companies, um, came, you know, Poland as a, or Krakow specifically became known for, uh, that, that, uh, programming language expertise. Um, but the other one is agile. Um, so talk about agile, that movement, your role in it, um, and, and how you've seen that grow. And you can also talk about the ACE conference and explain that to, to people who might be wondering what that is. So. Sure. Um, well, I, I, I mentioned earlier that I jumped into project management with both feet and started from a very traditional, um, approach to project management. And initially it was very satisfying. For example, I would talk to the programmers at uh, Lunar Logic in the States and ask them about what they were doing and how the, their work, what needed to be done in order to achieve their goals and, and compare that with the client's goals and then map out the critical path and, and get estimates and all of the parts and put them all into Gantt charts. And when I started putting these huge Gantt charts all over my walls, people started saying, ooh and ah, this looks like structure. This looks like, like, like clarity. And so initially it was very satisfying. But after a while, I started to discover that after that, that, that initial clarity is very much an illusion. That estimates, the best thing to do with, with, with the paper that estimates are written on is not to read it and believe it. It's more useful in the smallest room in the house. And that that the 
the way that we were building software was fundamentally flawed. Um, success that was based on on four pizza and 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 eight pot of coffee all nighters the day before the release and such is not sustainable. And a fair part of my job, and I think the fair part of a lot of of project managers' jobs becomes explaining why deadlines are missed and explaining why budgets are exceeded and such. Just because we take this this thing, which is a very constructive and creative act, which requires a great deal of collaboration, and we we break it into pieces and assign areas of responsibility when indeed it's very much a team sport and nobody can take whole take complete responsibility for the outcome without without a high degree of collaboration and i kind of um, i missed it when when uh, kent beck's first book um, on xp came out i read it i didn't entirely understand it it wasn't until uh, the scrum movement started that agile became understandable simple enough for me to wrap my head around and all i knew is that i did not like my job as it had been previously i did like did not like the job of hanging over people's shoulders and asking them when they were going to be done of asking people to estimate things that couldn't be estimated and then demanding that they tell me why they were wrong of making excuses or accepting blame when things didn't go right and playing a kind of um, intermediary between technical people and clients. Because one of the things that I learned as a non-technical person working closely with technical people is that the fundamentals of the creative process of creating software can be understood by a non-technical person. And technical people are perfectly capable of communicating and interacting with other humans. And those two, two facts fly in the face of traditional assumptions that that technical people are are antisocial geeks who can't speak English, and that that what they do is completely incomprehensible to the non-technical mind. So since I had learned that this was possible, Scrum gave Scrum was based on a very different idea, which is that we're all in this together. It's mostly a learning experience, and the best way to do that is to learn together and share responsibility throughout the process based on trust and transparency and communication. And to me, what it meant is that I'm not solely responsible for being the um, intermediary between these two fundamental aspects of the project, the clients and the, the development team. And, and that it doesn't have to be about promises and blame. It can be about collaborative, creative activities. And so when I had the opportunity to do thing, any, things any way that I wanted to when I was running my own company, we started immediately implementing Scrum by the book. Poorly at first, but over a period of many years, we learned to do it very well. For, the, for those who, um, there may be some listeners who don't know what Scrum is. We have all kinds of people listening. This may be the first episode. Uh, um, could you, in a couple of sentences, describe Scrum? Scrum was one of the, the, the first approaches to agile software development, which was clear and simple to understand and to implement. And fundamentally, it says that Software is built by a team and that, that everybody involved in the software development process is a member of the team. And so rather than having a lot of roles, it has very few. Um, everybody involved in the software development process is either a product owner, which means one person who makes the, 
who is responsible for representing all future users and the business needs so that there aren't numerous people putting putting different demands on the software development team a scrum master who is a specialist in understanding how scrum is supposed to work to act as sort of a coach and a mentor and the team and that all of these people talk together on a regular basis um, specifically they talk every single day in what's called a stand-up meeting in which everybody answers a few questions about what they've been doing what they plan to do so that everybody's always on the same page and that everyone plans together and that everyone shares in the successes at the end of each release and that rather than trying to plan a huge project all up front it's built in small iterative um, time box and time box means that you commit in advance that over a period of one week or over a period of two weeks or over a period of 30 days, the team is going to fo focus only on, com on, on completing a subset of work. Now, I have since found that there are better ways for many teams to work than Scrum, which is one of the reasons why I started a company that builds a product for doing things in other ways. Kanbanary supports a Kanban approach, which does away with the fixed time box iterations and is more focused on how to maximize how you flow value through a system and how you maximize the clarity of information to everybody who has an interest in it. But this is where I got started was with, was with Scrum. And that's essentially uh, agile to me means a, a different way of looking at building products by recognizing that that any kind of a new product development is a creative act done by a group of people who have to collaborate and trust each other and communicate throughout the entire process mm -hmm. yeah i picked up one thing i remember when paul was first explaining to me he said that every day there's a meeting and during the meeting people say what they did yesterday what they're going to do today and the role of the project manager is to deal and what's getting in my way any barriers mm -hmm. and the role of the project manager is to just deal with the barriers and you know just this i i'm a great fan of daily planning i'm a great fan of very very simple concepts to make people productive and efficient and this was this was fascinating for me and I, and kanban is the basis of the japanese manufacturing miracle i think toyota are famous for being uh, the the company that led kanban i don't know if it's actually true but they're certainly famous it is yeah. uh, uh, famous for it and so <coughs> toyota at their best were I think 400 or 500% more productive than the American, the typical American car company who invented you know, Henry Ford as an American. And so the Japanese imported uh, American ideas, revolutionized them, and now the rest of the world works to a Japanese standard. Um, we've got about five or 10 minutes left. And as usual, I'm talking too much. So um, <laughs> what, what other things should we be covering today? We're very interested in your ideas about where, where Krakow is going and where technology is going. But I'll let Sam ask that question in his way. <laughs> well, Paul, um, I, as, again, as a, as a new um, new member of the community, relatively, I've uh, been here 16 months now and, and a historian by training, um, uh, which is another completely worthless degree, right? If you're in the tech field, as uh, as I like to point out, that um, you know some of the best technologists. I mean, Steve Jobs famously uh, dropped out of college and and just audited calligraphy and art classes and history and and all kinds of other things that interest him. So, um, you know, I think that was a great point that you brought up. And one of the things that that really strikes me about Krakow and the, one of the points I've I've made about this is well. Of course, the programmers are great here, but but I'm more interested in the musicians, the composers, the 
the the artists, the writers, the videographers. Um, where do you see the entire community here um, going? Where are we strong? Where you know what parts still need to be developed? Um, you know, because you you're at the beginning of this kind of great movement that's kind of emerging in Krakow and Poland more broadly. So, uh, what do you see in in general um, going forward? The history or the the future of this? It's really difficult for me to say because I saw a lot of change over the time that I've been here, not nearly as long as Richard has been here, but I remember the frustrations that were associated with even getting small groups of entrepreneurs to trust each other and share in the early days. And these days, all of those people with whom I used to work with, with the, the, the first attempts to get open coffee going and with the, the, um, IT Small Business Alliance are all very successful. And when I go to tech events now, I'm seeing a much younger bunch of people who have a completely different mindset, a completely different approach to collaboration, to work, who see their futures differently than we did. And so I think that even just at the 10 or 20 year age gap between me and the people who first started trying to build an entrepreneurial community here and the people who are actually going to be building the entrepreneurial community of the future is so strikingly difficult, different that it's difficult for me to even get my mind around, let alone predict. Um, one of the big challenges, the second big challenge that we had after just collaborating and sharing and learning from each other and such was initially that there was, well, there was a lack of money for one. There weren't a lot of uh, investors and, and investment opportunities for startups in Krakow, and that's changing. We've got um, um, foreign funds taking an interest in what's happening here. We've got a number of, um, of um, <clears throat> other investment vehicles that are now available to Polish-based startups. And the other is that one of the biggest problems that Poland used to have in terms of technology startups is that even during the, the recessions that plagued the last decade, Poland was a consistently growing economy. Poland was the only consistent growing, consistently growing economy in Europe. And it's a country of 40 million people, which means if you're starting a startup in Estonia, you have to target a global audience because Estonia is not big enough to get rich off of as a startup. Where, whereas in Poland, you could target a Polish audience and build a rather large and successful, comfortable company serving only the, the needs of Polish internet users. And that used to be the biggest problem we faced. But now when I'm talking to young entrepreneurs, it's very rare to see startups whose websites are in Polish that are thinking predominantly of dominating the Polish market. There also used to be a lot of people who were, who were thinking about, well, let's look at what's working. Let's look at what what uh, um, what is working abroad and see if we can replicate that in Poland. And so you had these um, knockoffs of foreign ideas. So let's make a, a Polish version of eBay. Let's make a Polish version of Facebook. Let's make a Polish version of, of classmates.com, what have you. And now I'm seeing people thinking about innovative ideas that the world needs that they can contribute to creating. 
So it's a whole different group of people thinking completely differently than me and my friends 10 years ago were thinking. And I think the sky's the limit for them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true everywhere. And the great thing is now, <clears throat> just our most previous interview was with the, the head of uh, campus Warsaw, the Google campus Warsaw, who's talking about how well the community is doing there. And it's actually, it's good for Krakow, for Warsaw to boom. There isn't a, there, this historic rivalry, thank goodness, has begun to melt away as people realize that, you know, if your neighbor makes a fortune, some of it will reach you. Um, but what about technology trends? Which ones are the, the big ones for you? And obviously everyone thinks about mobile. There are buzzwords like the Internet of Things, but which quite often the buzzwords don't actually identify what individuals think are most important. What technology trends do you think are most important for Project Kashmir's listeners for the next five to ten years? And, and you're allowed to be wrong. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm guaranteed to be wrong. I think... And, and uh, this is really just, just a personal opinion that we are going to see the death of the app, that the end to the specialist product that will fix everything, and that the technologies that are going to be shaping the future are going to be technologies that are more intuitive, that are built more into people's existing lives that replace multiple solutions or, or allow people to, to more naturally live their lives as opposed to the next cool thing. Now, the next cool things are still popping up. Um, you see people getting really excited over Peach. I would like to say that, that we finally cracked this social media thing and we can stop now <laughs> but um so it's, it's not going to go away entirely but i think perhaps um one of my hopes is the growth of of design ethnography and lean ux and lean startup is getting innovators more in touch with the real needs and feelings and experiences of the people that they depend on to grow their businesses so that we end up with a whole generation of more integrated intuitive technologies that don't require as much icons on our phones and and products screwed into our walls and such very interesting i mean <clears throat> I, I i noticed the way technology is changing people like you know, the way people socialize, the way people interact, the way what people do for fun is fundamentally, if you look at a bunch of teenagers or even adults or even older adults, quite often they're sitting around an iPad, sitting around a phone, sharing experiences in a way that, and what they're sharing is experiences that couldn't be shared 15 years ago because the thing that's on the screen. And I, I, th I think that possibly the biggest change may be in people rather than in technology. The technology is going to race away, but it's very hard to anticipate what people are going to want and need if the people who want to need them are changing. So I think there's a kind of interaction happening between people and technology now, which is quite unpredictable. But I tend to be optimistic that as people get better at technology, they're going to faster adapt the technology to what people really want. And let's just hope what people really want is good for them and the planet. <laughs> it's not a... Well, uh, Paul, uh, thank you very much for, for joining us. I think we, we've definitely got a, a lot for people to think about and, you know, the, um, the impact that TEDx had on Krakow's uh, ecosystem, how to take a really 
um, bad situation, uh, like the death of Lunar Logic in Oregon, um, rest in peace, and make it into a, a global, um, very successful uh, technology company here in Poland. Um, you know, uh, starting the agile movement here in Poland, and uh, and also you know some some future ideas in technology. Also, your work in uh, project management, uh, making that easier and better for the world uh, with. Uh, uh, kind of Kanbanri. Sorry, my, my Japanese is, is bad there. But um, so uh, thank you very much for this. Uh, it's been very helpful to the listener. I know that everyone's definitely going to get a lot out of it. Um, again, uh, thank you, Project Kajimish listener, um, for joining us for another episode. We have some uh, great ones coming uh, uh, out in the near future. Uh, so uh, please go ahead and uh, listen to. Um, you know, listen to the short break we have after this, uh, the conclusion of the show, and uh, we look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Yeah, indeed. And if you if you if you love the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. If you hate it, just uh, email us. Uh, send, us <laughs> send us an email. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for listening to another episode of season two of Project Kajimash. To listen to our season one episodes or past season two episodes. Just subscribe to us on iTunes and your next episode will be delivered to your phone in your sleep. If you're an iPhone user, go to the iTunes to sign up. And if you're an Android listener, you can subscribe via Stitcher Radio or other popular podcasting apps. Go to our website to download the show notes from today's show where you can get any links mentioned on the show, the transcript, and sign up for our weekly newsletter. I would also encourage you to watch the mini documentary on our homepage about Project Kazimierz, the startup scene in Krakow in Poland. Also, like our Facebook page to get other news we find useful for the startup community. So visit our website, projectkazimierz.com. That is spelled project, K-A-Z-I-M-I-E-R-Z.com. Or just type it into Google and we will find it. Today's show was produced by Anya Bivanis Kitchen. Email and show notes by James Matheson. Transcription by Svetin Dimov. And sound editing by Michal Paduch. And finally, the music on this podcast is written by two young local Polish composers, Marek Iweskiewicz and Michal Zielokowski. After you hear from our show sponsors, we have a nice musical postlude to the show featuring the rest of their work, as well as some of our best insights from our guests during episode one of Project Kajimich. This episode is brought to you by James Cook Media. I founded James Cook Media when I moved to Poland. James Cook Media is a full-service digital marketing and sales agency. Our mission is to bring world-class products to the global English-speaking market. The thing that I've noticed in Poland is how many amazing, talented companies there are building great products, and they're struggling to get traction in the international English-speaking market. I think that's a shame, and I want to help these companies get their products to the market. Silicon Valley parlance, you would call us growth hackers. My team of specialists that I've trained from the beginning here in Poland builds from scratch custom marketing funnels. This includes ideal customer visualization and profiling, complete branding, visual identity, videos, music, uh, website and landing page copywriting, landing page and website design, marketing video commercials, sales videos, testimonial videos, as well as custom written music podcast productions like this one, content marketing, search engine optimization, website optimization, and paid media traffic, campaign design, management, as well as optimization, including Facebook ads, Google ads, YouTube ads, LinkedIn ads, Pinterest ads, and Instagram ads. So that's a lot. But I've been doing marketing online now for over 10 years in multiple industries from e-commerce to tourism to software service, digital publishing, 
money transfer apps, and online sports marketing. Over the course of this time, I founded two separate companies as well as worked for loads of clients all over the world, and I had to learn every part of online marketing. I came to Poland to build my own in-house marketing team for my last business, and I'll tell you that the talent here is absolutely world-class, as good as any marketing talent you would find in New York City. I personally design my campaigns, write the copy, direct the videos, do the setup with the project manager, and a full-time team of specialists of designers, developers, ad managers, and optimizers to fully manage from start to finish your marketing so you can focus on your product and your business. If you think you'd like to learn more about my company and what we may be able to do for you, go to jamescook.pl and enter your information. You will also find information about meetups that I'm running with Ava Vysotska of Good Tribe Consulting, where you can learn all about the latest in marketing strategy and techniques. Even when I work with clients, I make sure that they completely understand my marketing philosophy and strategy so that they can have buy-in and ownership of it. Because as a business owner, you always need to completely own your strategy for getting your product to market. But we help you do it. If you're a startup or an investor from outside of Poland and you're interested in visiting Krakow and Warsaw's startup scene in Poland or even moving here to set up your team, James Cook Media also offers high-level concierge services to help companies get set up here. I moved to Poland because I believe East is the new West. For 400 years, brave and trepid entrepreneurs have been going West to the U.S. and the American West for prospecting. Now San Francisco and California is so overpriced and so expensive. The new digital gold rush, as I call it, where you can get the most value for your money in terms of investment is here in Eastern Europe, where you have world-class engineering talent, designers, video makers, artists, graphic artists, and marketers. You can do New York City agency or San Francisco level coding work for a very competitive price. If you're interested to learn more, please go to the website, jamescook.pl, enter your information, and we'll give you more information about how we might be able to help you. You know, vision is all great and well, but execution is actually the key. The actual process of meeting those people, working with them, is in itself a huge reward. Interaction between the university and the business high-tech community is absolutely fundamental. Diversity creates a healthy ecosystem, and I think that I'm seeing more and more that diversity. It's not just about individuals, but about new individuals, it's about, you know, um, new initiatives. Sometimes they overlap with each other, sometimes they might be cannibalizing each other, but the reality is that you want to have as many as possible because that accelerates the big picture. We're not going to have everyone in the world here, and in this connected world, we don't need everyone here, but, but the, you know, the artists and the designers, the creatives, they're very much part of what, we, what we've got and what we need. So if you're listening again somewhere else in the world and you feel you, you're looking for a place where your, your, your creative juices will run, then, then, then this city is certainly a place where you can find yourself. And I think you can make history in Poland. I think you can be part of something much bigger than you could be a part of in the United States right now. Not just from a, you know, going out to San Francisco to make Silicon Valley richer, but, but making a new part of the world um, grow at a much faster rate, be a much bigger part of that community, and, and making it wealthy, not just for wealth's sake, but for uh, a purpose, which is to make that country's government stronger, 